Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Yep, it's fall, and the light's changing, the days are getting shorter. But here on the California Report magazine, we are trying to hold on to summer vibes for as long as we possibly can. I'm Sasha Koka, and this week, I invite you to come along with us on a couple adventures. It was really an exciting ride, and everybody wanted to ride that thing. By the way, it had no seatbelts, no bar, nothing to hang onto. We're going to search for the relics of what was once a beloved amusement park in San Francisco. And always the scariest thing about going into the funhouse when wearing a skirt was the air holes in the floor that randomly would blow a shot of air as you stepped over them. But first, we're headed to East San Jose, to this scrappy strip mall that's home to a banh mi shop selling Vietnamese sandwiches. At first glance, the corner of Burdette Drive and South King Road doesn't look like anything special, but this street corner is a California transportation hub. Every morning by around 8 a.m., there's this steady stream of riders who line up by a spotless white tour coach. There are no markings on this bus, but the passengers are here for the daily run of the Se Da Huang, which means royal coach in Vietnamese. Those in the know call it the Bang Mi Bus. So hop on, enjoy your delicious sandwich, and listen to this surprising story about food, community, and murder for hire? Reporter Christine Wen takes us along for the ride. Christine Nguyen, hai người phải khỏe cái đó. Christine ha. 2022 was supposed to be the year my family traveled to Vietnam. I wanted my kid to visit where my dad was born, and I love Vietnamese street food. But then COVID, inflation, plane cancellations, or lost luggage? No thank you. Still, I wanted that summer cultural experience for my kid. So I thought, why not go to the next best thing right here in California? Little Saigon in Orange County. And why not in real Viet style on the famous Bang Mi bus? This one too? Okay, thank you. So, bright and early with teenager in tow, I'm on my way. We head down Highway 101 past Gilroy's Garlic Fields. I'm kind of looking forward to this ride because I've heard about it for years. 
it got the name Bangmi Bus because for lunch, they used to give passengers a Bangmi, a crispy baguette filled with grilled meat, pickled vegetables, chilies, herbs, mayo, and maji seasoning, or a vegetarian option. COVID ended that. Now you just get a bottle of water. But these days, despite no free lunch, Bangmi is still the carry-on food of choice. Conveniently, there is a Bangmi shop at most stops. Behind me, a lady gazes out the window, tantalized by the prices at roadside fruit stands. She tells me she's 73 and her name is Hien Nguyen. Hien means friendly. She smiles approvingly at my daughter. She and her husband, Lee, don't feel confident driving the 400 miles from San Jose to Orange County to see their grandkids. They'd rather relax. Hien passes me an adorable cluster of apple bananas. Once I finish the plump fruit, Hien keeps feeding me. A Tupperware appears over my shoulder. It's homemade soy va, which is sweet rice with coconut and a generous yellow dust of mung beans. She's topped it with thick matchstick slices of chat lua, which is like Vietnamese mortadella cooked in banana leaves. He enhanced me a package of disposable utensils. I dig in. The Seada Huang Bus Company started when its founder, Lin Huang Nguyen, saw an opportunity. Over half a million Vietnamese Americans live in California, and San Jose and Orange County are like two Vietnamese capitals like Hanoi and Saigon. And though the communities are distinct, they share a constant flow of people and stuff back and forth. In the late 90s, Lin, a professional driver, often helped Vietnamese navigate airport check-ins in Orange County. For many refugees and immigrants who didn't know the way to San Jose, the airport and the language barrier were overwhelming. What if he drove people himself? So Lin bought a few vans and eventually his new company, Seada Huang, expanded to a network of coaches across the West Coast. It was appealing to riders because it was kind of like Greyhound, but Vietnamesified. The company advertises amenities like big glass windows, Wi-Fi, and a clean restroom. Let's beat him up first. TV screens play movies like Jackie Chan's 1996 classic, First Strike. Or episodes of Paris by Night, the blockbuster Vietnamese variety show. Yeah, you've got to be okay with Vietnamese pop music. Plus, if you want to haul a cooler of frozen crab or a mini orchard of tropical fruit trees, no problem. Thu, a 20-year veteran employee, explains. I saw trees. Did you take put the trees back there? The tree? Yeah, they, they, you know, there's a lot of people in San Jose, they bought the tree from on county. And they plant in, you know, around, uh, back yard up, up there how. Besides weapons, explosives, and illegal substances, Du says only a few things are off limits. 
mostly smelly stuff like fish sauce, durian, or jackfruit. What's forbidden? In the early aughts, business was so lucrative, copycats pushed Lin into a bus war. Lin didn't reply to my inquiries, but what happened is part of California Vietnamese lore. Prices dropped, then someone torched two of his buses. Drivers got assaulted, and it got dirtier, like attempted murder dirty. Here's a report from July 25th, 2005 in Viet Bao, the Vietnamese Daily. Fountain Valley police are hunting for the attempted assassin who shot the owner of Sedo Huang at 8 o'clock last Saturday. Mr. Nguyen Huang Lin, 38 years old, commonly known as Lin Sedo Huang, entered his car to go to work when he was shot. The gunman fired six times through the car window, but Lin survived. Here's the same paper two weeks later. With bullet wounds still imprinted on the back of his neck and scars on his arms, Lin Sedo Huang spent a day traveling around Little Saigon to, quote, thank you for your support, end quote. After Lin was targeted, the community rallied around him. Business actually improved. Law enforcement investigated the attempted murder. The conclusion? Murder for hire, ordered by a competitor. Three hitmen were convicted. And today, Lin is on top again. One competitor after another, gone. Even Vietnamese in Vietnam know about the bus. On channels like Kang Nguyen's American Life and The Lady Who Sells Pho, YouTubers document their American vacation on the Xe Đo Huang. The videos promise views of hills dotted with wildflowers and America's amazing interstate highways. Through word of mouth, bargain hunters of all ethnicities have found their way onto the bus. I meet a woman named Alex. She doesn't give me her last name, but she's speaking Spanish to her relatives. Are you all riding together? Are you yeah. All friends? Yeah. yeah, family. family. Um, have you ridden the Sedan Juan? No, I haven't. It's my first time. Um, my mom has and my aunt have before. Okay. So far, so good. Yeah. I think it's actually better than the Greyhound. <laughs> yeah, you've ridden Greyhound. Yeah. Andrew Lay has on earbuds and is chilling to the song Attention by Joji. He's unfazed that the old woman behind him has slipped off her Tommy Hilfiger slides and propped her bare foot on his armrest. I'm heading to L.A. Yeah. So, uh, what are you going to do in L.A.? Uh, I'm going to go visit my cousin and go to a music festival with him. Uh, Joji and Porter Robinson will be like one of the headliners. Andrew explains he considered going by train or Greyhound, but he says it was too long and complicated. Seada Huang makes the trip in just six hours. Andrew's mom hooked him up with a reservation and lunch. I have bun mi ready for lunch. Uh, bun mi dak biak. Can you tell listeners what's in a bang mi duck bit? All sorts of stuff. Honestly, some, some of the stuff I don't really prefer, but yeah, all sorts of stuff. We share a knowing smile. This bang mi duck bit, or special combo sandwich, contains head cheese. Made from parts of a pig's head, it tastes fine, but the slightly gelatinous, crunchy texture is not my fave either. Where are we? 
We're in the middle of nowhere. My daughter and I stare out at the scrubland punctuated by dust devils. Inside, the air conditioning is aggressive. My friendly auntie, the one who kept feeding me, is asleep. She's also barefoot, and her legs rest on her husband's lap. Vietnamese music plays softly from someone's phone. A Buddhist nun drinks soy milk directly out of a half-gallon carton. During the break on Interstate 5, just outside Bakersfield, elders stretch in the parking lot of the Button Willow Travel Center. Deng Da, the driver, scarfs down Beng Quan, a rice crate filled with ground pork. I've been driving for 30 years, sister, six for this company, he says. I wonder if he gets tired driving the same six-hour route all the time with only a single break. But he says he doesn't get tired because he loves his job. It's got a special meaning for him. He says that before 1975, when South Vietnam fell to the north, his grandparents had a similar business shuttling passengers from Saigon to the resort town of Dalat. Ten minutes on the dot, Dung's behind the wheel again, and we're off. Sitting next to a businessman who doesn't want to be disturbed is Sui Ching Kim. She likes to be called Jessie. My name Jessie. Jessie's Chinese and is on her way to Warner Center in Southern California. Yes, I know. I have been uh, used this bus for many years because I know the, the driver. He's a good driver. She's relied on the bus for over a decade to visit her boy, she says. He's actually a grown man who works at Facebook. Jessie recommends the bus to friends. We cross the hills to the Los Angeles Basin. Hien, my friendly auntie and her husband, think the mountains remind them of Dalat. That's the same mountain resort the driver mentioned. Dalat, once called Petite Paris, has a kind of mythical quality to many older Vietnamese. It's 5,000 feet above sea level and surrounded by pine trees. In the past, the city was a getaway for French colonialists, artists, and newlyweds. It seems any time there are trees and a mountain, an elder will say it looks like Dalat. I squint at the Magic Mountain theme park and try to relate. After brief stops in Chinatown and El Monte and more than five hours on the road, someone decides now is the time to crack open some fish sauce. Dung, the driver, quickly shuts down the potential disaster. The rules are the same, sister, he says. You can't use fish sauce on the bus. Fish sauce, salt sauce, please close it.
45 minutes later, we arrive at ABC Supermarket in Westminster. Deng helps a woman with a cane disembark, and family members crowd to collect relatives and cargo. The corner of Magnolia and Bolsa does not have summer getaway vibes. But I'm not in Little Saigon to hang out at the beach. I'm here to eat. And that's what I plan to do with my daughter for the next two days. The night market at Phuc Lok Tha, or Asian Garden Mall, is the closest thing to being in Vietnam that I've seen. It's packed. Vietnamese rap music competes with a bandstand playing cha-cha songs for dancers of all ages. Smoking meat mixes with smoke from firecrackers. Stalls sell barbecued snails, home-grilled octopus, and pandan pancakes. And when you need to crouch and eat, there are colorful plastic stools, just like in Vietnam. I like to think of beng mi, which has become pretty popular, as a kind of Vietnamese gateway food. Now I'm here with my teen, showing her how to dip skewers of grilled beef wrapped in betel leaves into a pineapple anchovy sauce. Okay, dancers, how about do some cha-cha-cha, right? Sẽ hơn bao giờ hết. Xin mời các chị. For a minute, I get over my lack of rhythm and dance next to a couple who shimmy expertly in traditional pajamas. A woman in a COVID face visor twirls on her own. It's a full-on Vietnamese line dance. I've been transported to our summer cultural experience thanks to the Sat Huang, otherwise known as the Bang Mi Bus. For the California Report, I'm Christine Nguyen. And now we're going to head to San Francisco's Ocean Beach and travel back in time to the early 1900s when trolley lines that were brand new started bringing passengers from downtown to the western edge of the city, out to the beach. And that's where an amusement park sprung up, which drew loyal visitors for decades. As part of a collaboration with our friends at KQED's Bay Curious podcast, reporter Christopher Beale takes us on a journey to learn about this iconic park. He discovered you can still find traces of it today. In 1914, they actually put in the uh, merry-go-round there. And that was the Loof's Hippodrome. That's Jim Smith. I'm the author of San Francisco's Playland at the Beach, the early years and a second book, The Golden Years. 
Shortly after Luff's Hippodrome, this ornate carousel opened, John Friedel bought in and brought big ideas to the area residents were now calling shoots at the beach. Friedel decided that he wanted to make a first-rate park out of it. So in 1919, he went in and started building a lot of rides, and people loved it. I mean, at, at that time, there was nothing near like it anywhere else in the West Coast. George Whitney became the manager in 1926 and formally changed the name of the roughly three-block area to Playland at the Beach. Now, one of the smart things they did was they uh, made it free to get in the park. So there were no gates. You just go down there, and if you got a quarter or you got a dime, you could put those towards the ride. That's Laughing Sal, possibly the most iconic character to actually survive Playland at the Beach. More on that later. She was sort of this early animatronic, and this was way before Disneyland came onto the scene. She was located at the entrance to the Fun House. Jeannie Lawton remembers visiting in the 60s. And always the scariest thing about going into the funhouse when wearing a skirt was the air holes in the floor that randomly would blow a shot of air as you stepped over them. And we girls would scream with delight and try to jump over them before they got us. But we never succeeded. One night, she and her girlfriends discovered the secret to that gag. I happened to look up in the balcony and saw a guy who was working there, grinning from ear to ear, because the bursts of air were not random at all. He was watching for the girls in skirts to come close to the air holes in the floor, and then he would hit the button. The Playhouse was one of a whole selection of attractions available at the park. There were food vendors, too. One of the more popular ones was an item actually invented by George Whitney in 1928. When he got the formula right for this dessert, he's said to have yelled out, It's it! And the It's It was born. Back then, they made their own oatmeal cookies and put a scoop of vanilla ice cream in between two cookies and then hand-dipped the whole thing in hot chocolate and handed it to you to eat right away. You can still buy It's It at many West Coast grocery stores. Just check the freezer section. A lot of the food stands and the attractions at Playland at the Beach were independently owned and operated, like small businesses. Bob's roller coaster, the merry-go-round, the Whirlpool ride, which you're sitting in a cage spinning around, that was really fast. They had uh, Dodger. It was originally it was called Dodgem, and then it became Dodger. And they didn't ever call them bumper cars because they didn't want you to slam into each other. They had to repair them. The Big Dipper, when they built that, was really tall. 65 feet, like almost a seven-story building. And it had huge drops and long climbs. It was really an exciting ride, and everybody wanted to ride that thing. By the way, it had no seat belts, no bar, nothing to hang onto except the rail on each side. People did get hurt on that once in a while. Like the rides weren't very safe. No. There was no OSHA back then. <laughs> Diving bell was fun. It was a bell-shaped thing. Once you get in, they'd bolt down the door, you know, tie it down like in a, like in a submarine. They had this 40-foot deep well, and as you were going down, you'd see 
fish in there. I mean, it had sharks, it had uh, octopi, it had all kinds of different uh, saltwater animals. I think it was designed this way on purpose, it leaked. And the guy was operating it would say, uh-oh, uh-oh, we're leaking here, we're, we're, we're gonna sink, I'm not gonna be able to get this thing back up. He says, let's see if we can come up. Well, he'd pull the brakes off this thing and it would bob to the top like a cork. Some people thought it was a riot and some people were scared to death. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, Whitney was able to consolidate power by buying out the other concessions at Playland as they failed. And through this, he garnered control of much of Playland at the beach. The Whitneys even bought the land Playland sat on and nearby plots with plans for future expansion. But in 1958, George Whitney died. And without him, Playland at the beach was sort of rudderless and it began to fail. They started pulling down the rides. The property itself fell into disrepair and folks stopped visiting. Then, in 1972, Whitney's widow sold Playland at the Beach to a developer. Jeremy at Hoken. Eventually, the property's new owner decided to close Playland. He wanted to build on it, and he wanted to build these uh, big condos up there. Everybody hated him in the city. Why, Why did people hate him? The way they saw it is he stole Playland from them. Nobody wanted to see Playland go away, except for the ones that wanted the money. Etz Hoken had Playland at the beach torn down. He had no permission or anything. And then the city fathers got all ticked off, so they put a 10-year moratorium on building on that lot. So he was stuck with this thing. He paid a fortune for it, but he couldn't do anything with it now. The moratorium eventually ended, and today those apartments that are like various shades of pastels and that Safeway on 48th Avenue are where Playland at the Beach used to be. Thankfully, several important pieces of Playland survived the demolition. A pretty visible one is the big Wurlitzer organ at the Santa Cruz Boardwalk. Of course, there's Laughing Sal at Pier 45's Musée Mécanique, and the original carousel from Loof's Hippodrome is still in San Francisco as well. Today, the Leroy King Carousel, as it's known, is operated by the Children's Creativity Museum at Yerba Buena Gardens. Go ahead and get started. Key in the ignition. Bell time. Welcome to Leroy King Carousel. Please remain seated, facing forward while the ride is in motion. Okay, so I heard that earlier, and I thought it was a recording. I didn't realize that was actually you yeah, saying that. Me, yeah, my name is Davey Solorzano. I'm the operations and events coordinator here, uh, carousel operator, amongst many other things. Is it crazy to stand here every day and operate something that is, like, several lifetimes older than you? Like, yeah. that, that oh, has yeah. been around all this time, and people have cared for it, and now it's in your hands? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a really cool job. Um, it's not even a job. I don't even. I, I'm. I'm literally just here. Yeah. Don't. Don't tell them you'll do it for free, though. Yeah, oh no, I won't say that. <laughs> Playland has been gone almost 50 years, but these remnants of Playland at the beach, like organs and carousels and weird carnival attractions like Laughing Sal, will continue to live on under the watchful eye of their caretakers allowing the next generation of thrill-seekers and those chasing nostalgia another trip back in time.
That was reporter Christopher Beale with a piece he originally produced for KQED's podcast, Bay Curious. Thanks to Katrina Schwartz, Olivia Allen Price, Amanda Font, David Gallagher, Mike Winslow, and Carol Tang for their help with this story. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We are a production of member-supported KQED in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our director. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Izzy Bloom and Jessica Carissa. Special thanks this week to Luke Lum. I'm Sasha Coca. Hanging on to those summer vibes as long as I can. You can always check out all the episodes of our show on your podcast feed. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind the scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.